it's time to sell, I, I found that the best approach is to treat that like a partnership conversation, but to uh, be, you know, put on your best kind of cologne or perfume or whatever and be, you know, as alluring as possible, you know. So when I've approached uh, companies that I thought could buy me, I always approach them under the guise of potential partnership. Welcome everybody to another episode of Sober Mesa Podcast. Today our guest is my friend Trevor Trina, who has an amazing list of accomplishments. Trevor founded several tech companies, sold it to the likes of Microsoft and MasterCard. And not happy with that, he went on to become the US ambassador to Austria. Uh, so an amazing and multifaceted guest. I can't wait to get right into it. Well, welcome to the show, Trevor. Oh, thank you for having me. Trevor, so... Um, let me ask you, what's the what's the point of all of this? I mean, you being, uh, you were born in a, into a very privileged background, a very wealthy family, with people like H. H. Dow, founder of Dow Chemical, part of your family tree. Um, how did and then you went on to become this super successful businessman? Didn't stop there, became U.S. ambassador to Austria. How did being born in this golden cradle, so to speak, affected your your perception on risk? Or, or your approach to risk taking in life and in professional settings. Well, you know, it's funny because we we hear so often the kind of rags to riches story. Um, unfortunately, sometimes we also hear the riches to rags stories. <laughs> yeah. It seems like there's more of those every day. But you know, um, people always say to me, "You're a, such an anomaly because you grew up." maybe not really having to work and yet you've always worked so hard and like what was it about your upbringing that was different or what what motivated you but I think it was actually um I think it was I think it was growing up in a family that had a lot of interesting and dynamic people who I used as my role models and I just wanted to be like those successful people I wanted to make my own mark I didn't want to just sit around and um and that was kind of a crazy motivator for me you know when i sold my first company to microsoft i was still in my 20s and uh, i made a fair amount of money and i sat my parents down and i said to them i said now you're free to live as long as you want um and they they said they were very relieved that I wasn't trying to poison them or push them in front of a, a train or anything like that. You know, I could could wait my time. So, uh, but I think it made me uh, it made me bold. And also, the other thing is that I never worried about um, what would happen if I failed. I knew even if I made a terrible mistake and I failed that I would still have food on the table or a place to stay. So um, that it, that um, safety net made me bold. But that explains the first one, maybe. It's like, okay, if I fail, it's okay. But then you kept going time and again and again and again, not only in, in the in the business world, but also then in the in the in the politics world. Like there must be something else than just like, okay, yeah, there's a safety net. I can I can try. Uh, what do you think is that drive? Do you think it's proving yourself that you can do more than what it was just giving you like at first? Do you think there's something else, maybe a chip in your shoulder for some reason? Like, have you thought about this? Well, I think that the, the different um, 
there's different motivations for different kinds of endeavors, right? You know, the first company is always um, the most challenging, the most wonderful, um, uh, the, 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 the one where you kind of cut your teeth. But I think in my case, there were a couple motivators. The first was, you know, when I sold my first company, I was so young. It's sort of like, what was I going to do? Just sit around for decades and decades doing nothing. Um, and um, I, I kind of got bored. You know, I, I missed using my brain and I missed the, the whole experience, the camaraderie, building a team, you know, being with a committed group of people, uh, the ups, the downs, the, the, the joy, the disappointments, you know, I missed the adrenaline, but more than that, I missed the creating, you know, it's sort of like, I'm the type of person who maybe other founders are like me, where it's just, I have a constant um, uh, barrage of ideas. It's just, you know, I'm always imagining, dreaming, thinking about things, wondering if something could be optimized wondering if it could be improved. And I, I just kept, I couldn't turn off that stream in my brain and I could see how I could make this happen or that happen. And I just needed to go and do it uh, to keep growing, to keep being a more more evolved person. You talked about other entrepreneurs as well. Um, and, and when thinking more broadly um, uh, about people like Elon or Warren Buffett, or even like mm -hmm. thinking, look at the history, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt or like, uh, or even even maybe friends like uh, Mark Benioff or uh, maybe even Arnold, whom you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is pretty, pretty popular, pretty popular these days on the new TV show. Like, what do you think drives them? Is it about getting more money than what they already have? Is it trying to wield power or is it just being in the game? Sort of what you explained before. You know, I think they're like I was saying, they're different motivations for different kinds of people. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs who um, are looking to make it right. You know, they're hungry. Yeah. They don't want to be they don't want to be living in a terrible apartment. They they want to, you know, break through. They don't have to want to have to worry anymore. Um which is a huge motivator. And I can think of a lot of entrepreneurs who I've funded, people I've met in business school along the way, they just wanna make it, kind of make it big. And so that's kind of one group of, of entrepreneurs. Then there's another group of entrepreneurs or, or business people or whatever you wanna call them who they're kind of playing on another level. Um, for them, it's not about making it um, or, or about comfort or about, money per se, it's about um, um, either um, seeing kind of these once in a lifetime opportunities um, and focusing in on creating something that changes the world, or uh, it's just because they're playing on another level and they can, right? Um, I mean, I remember once having a dinner and it was like Bill Gates and, you know, uh, Sergey and Larry and this and there, you know, that, that when you dine with people like that, um, you just see they're playing on another level, that their level of, of clarity and insight and knowledge and conviction um, enables them to do things that a lot of kind of more mortals can't do, right? So it's just it's different. I mean, Arnold is a, an incredible example. You know, he literally came from nothing and he had very little to offer, but he built himself up, built himself like this hunger from inside. And when I was ambassador to Austria, I'd met him a couple of times in California. Yeah, because he's Austrian. 
right? Born he's in Austria. Very Austrian. Yeah. And he's, you know, from a like a distant corner of Austria with an accent that is so strong that Austrians told me when he speaks on German speaking television, they run subtitles. <laughs> in fact, we used to laugh. At, I said, you know, we assume German is his first language. And they said, well, we assume English is his primary language <laughs> because his German is so complicated, you know. Um, but here's a guy who, you know, had um, uh, didn't have a whole lot of talents, but he had one and he kind of knew how to how to hone it and use it to like to ride a wave. And, you know, there are extraordinary people like that. It's impressive. It's impressive. Um... I actually... I sat with him at the World Downhill Ski Races in Kitzbühel. I was the American ambassador. We were with the governor of the Tyrol, the mayor of Kitzbühel and, and Arnold. Um, and uh, I said to him, I was like, Arnold, you know, um, maybe it's your time again. You know, you're you're a conservative, but you're an environmentalist. You know, you if you ran again in politics, you kind of have something to offer everyone. And he said to me, my life is perfect. Why would I want to ruin it? Uh, so that that was after after he became governor of California, or before? That was uh, about two and a half, three years ago. So that's where he stands now. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um, and and the most impressive thing is that similar to you, he went from one discipline to the other and sort of tried to, to play um, at the peak of its game from bodybuilding to movie star to to politics. And so you have uh, something something similar in that regard. And, and I want to dive first into we're going to go to politics afterwards. We'll dive into mm -hmm. tech and entrepreneurship a little bit. Um, and maybe just to paint the picture here, if you can tell us a story about the first company that you started, the first company that you sold, just, just for context, Trevor started six companies, um, five of which sold to, to in varying degrees of success. So like six time on six rodeo here for <laughs> you. <laughs> but let's start. And there's a lot of common denominators on each of these. Uh, so I would like you to tell us the story about the first one, and then we can dive into sort of the takeaways. Sure. Well, um, the... I, I guess I grew up just knowing I did not want to work for anyone else. I wanted to work for myself. And that was just my strong conviction. And um, so I went through uh, university uh, and through business school, just knowing that this is my fate. Right. And um but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so one day I was going to a big consumer electronics store and I wanted something very specific. And I talked to the sales guy. He had this like bright red blazer on. And, you know, I said, can you tell me, is there a product that has these features? And he said, well, we don't carry that. And I don't know if anyone else does. I'm just not sure. Right. And I thought, isn't that crazy? He's the expert and he doesn't have all the information and I'm not being helped as a consumer. And so I thought, what if I could build a website uh, that could really help shoppers know what they wanted to buy before they bought it to make sure they didn't make a mistake. And, and this, so, this is going to date you, but this is, we're talking about mid nineties. This is web one point. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I, said, you know, the other websites are just trying to sell you something. They're not telling you if it's the perfect thing for you or not. 
And so I came across this concept. I call it ComparNet. It was one of the first comparison shopping websites. And uh, I launched it literally um, uh, in my father's house um, within my, my, my younger sister's room. I had like eight employees and we had laptops. We would push under the bunk beds at night, you know, when the kids came home. And one day my father came to me and he said, you know, I think it's time for you to get an office. And so uh, I did. I had, a, I had a partner and he and I were able to do a round of funding, which was uh, a very complicated process and very uh, scary. But um, we, we had literally run out of all the seed capital, couldn't pay anyone. And I had gone to Denver, Colorado to participate in uh, a, a mobile phone conference because they paid me $2,000 uh, and I thought that would be helpful. And this guy who I met at the conference called me and said, um, I'm now uh, at GE Capital um, and would you like some money for your startup you told me about? And I was like, would I? Uh, and uh, I mean, literally we were about to have to close the thing down. And one month later, we had $5 million in the bank. And 11 months later, I sold the company to Microsoft for roughly $100 million. And so um, it was like one of my first important lessons, which is, you know, you never know what the universe will provide you and where it comes from. And so when you're in that position, go everywhere, do everything, meet everyone, because you never know who's going to be the one person you need to help you. Um, the 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 thing I like about the and we can tell the stories and we're not gonna because just just for the interest of time but we kind of there's a common thread in each of the five stories because uh, the sixth one is still TBD we'll see what happens um just getting started but on the five previous companies you're capitalizing on an emerging opportunity in this case Web One this is uh before the craziness of the two thousands and right before the crash you build a successful and interesting business around it, and then you sell it. And this is to me something quite, quite interesting. And I'm not, not saying that's necessarily what you do. That's just you know what, what ended up happening on the majority of, of those. Um, let's focus further on the market. Um, I've heard you say and mention the importance of being uh, at the right place in, at the right time. So the importance of the market and the vertical you're operating in, and then also the, the importance of timing. So in this, sort of impossible debate of what's more important, market or founder, um, where do you lean on and, and, and what's your take? Okay, maybe can you elaborate on that take um, that we were discussing before? Yeah, I think it's an age-old debate. And, yeah. um, you know, you see that, I, I mean, I, I love the famous quote of Mark Zuckerberg about Twitter, um, that it was a clown car full of clowns that crashed into a gold mine. Uh, and, you know, that um, they just got super, super lucky. The market was explosive, you know, right when they were there and they didn't really know what they were doing. But they um, but in my opinion, the founder or the founded team is way more important than the market. You know, so um, I've founded companies in good times and in bad times. Uh, and, and, and I don't mean to imply that I'm such a great founder, but, you know, it's I think it was in those cases only my stubbornness, like my unwillingness to fail no matter what 
that um, allowed some of those companies to be ultimately successful because you you endure so many tribulations. There's so many unexpected problems and a great founder will just literally walk through a wall in order to solve a problem. They, they, you, you cannot tell them no. In fact, I've had a lot of instances where people have asked me, should I do this? Should I do that? And I just said to them, no. And the reason why isn't because I don't want them to do something important or to be successful, but if my telling them no was enough for them not to do it, then they would have never been a good founder. I mean, a couple of my most successful companies, people told me, you'll never be successful, you'll never, but you know, um, it's the ability to kind of write your playbook as you're, as you're playing, the, to figure things out, that's what makes you successful. But on the flip side as well, you have um, you know operating in the market that's rising, and and when the tide rises, and then all, all, every single boat out there also rises with you. So it, it you know there's funding, there's consumer interest, there's uh, easiness to acquire talent. So you know it's quite important as well. No, it is very helpful. Like everyone wants to be lucky, and it can absolutely amplify your success. If you're in the, at the right place at the right time, if you have an easy market, whatever, it can absolutely help. Um, so in a, in a perfect world, you have both. But if you had to pick one, I would still say it's the founder who, who makes or breaks the whole thing. Yeah. And then uh, on the second piece of what I was saying before, we have the M&A or the selling of the business. Um, What's a, what's a secret behind it, or what's a is there a is there a blueprint that you can that for the founders out there that have been grinding for a couple of years and think, hey, maybe this is the right time to sell? What do you think, having gone through multiple processes, what do you think is the right time to sell? Is it at the at what you consider the peak? Is it when you foresee a lot of challenges, or how do you measure that timing? I think that like. The, the best analogy for growing a, a business is like blowing up a balloon, right? So what you want to do is blow the balloon up as large as you possibly can and, and tie it off before it pops. Because if it pops, you end up with nothing. If you uh, tie it off, you end up with, uh, you know, a large balloon. And so that's the trick, right? And so I found in my career that at every kind of natural inflection point, maybe, you know, post uh, a product improvement or launch, maybe post a funding or maybe when a funding is due, whenever those points come, you have to have like a serious talk with yourself. Like, where do we really stand here? What am I doing? Do I really believe I can take this thing to the next level? What is the market telling me? And in my case, with each of my companies, there were those moments where it seemed like the best um, uh, course of action was to sell them, either because that was what they were maximized for or because having a bigger partner or a bigger owner would allow uh, for things that I just couldn't provide, whether it was a bigger audience, more resources, uh, um, partnership opportunities, whatever. And so, um, you know, in the first case, I sold my company because it wasn't... Uh, it, it wasn't really worth what I could get for it. And I felt like if I didn't sell it, then I'd have to wait maybe years before it was really worth that. In other cases, it was to tap into larger audiences, but 
um, you know, I would still love someday to have an IPO. <laughs> Got it. That that makes sense. And and then as far as how to go about it, let's say you identify the 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 right moment to sell and you're ready to it, but you haven't done it before. What do you think is the best approach? And I've had entrepreneurs ask me before, do you do, do should I approach the potential buyers? Should I wait for them to approach me? What if they don't approach me at all? Like what how how should I go about it? When you're an entrepreneur, you conduct your whole life like you're single at a bar and you're flirting. <laughs> um, and I mean that for everything, your fundraising, your partnerships, even uh, looking to acquire great talent, you know. Um, and so I always tell people like you're always fundraising, even if you have the money you need, like you're developing the relationships for the next round or and similarly with partnerships, you know, you're always kind of talking to everyone when when it's time to sell. I, I found that the best approach is to treat that like a partnership conversation, but to uh, be, you know, put on your best kind of cologne or perfume or whatever and be, you know, as alluring as possible, you know. So when I've approached uh, companies that I thought could buy me, I always approach them under the guise of potential partnership. And then I express the vision of partnership and the synergies and the um, the opportunities in such a way that if I were on the other side of the table, I would be saying, we need to sew up this opportunity. We need to grab this company and, and own them in order to, to achieve those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I think that's the way to do it is to present it like uh, I had a, I had a board member that said, um, companies are never sold, they're bought. And so um, if you are trying to sell, in some cases, it might telegraph weakness or... Exactly, um, yeah. And so a better way to do it is to make it feel like it's someone else's idea. And I've also found that when you talk to these companies, it's very helpful to have two advocates, a senior one who can sign, sign a, on a the other comp On the other comp, on the potential buyer side. Correct. Yeah, a, cha a champion. A champion. That's exactly yeah. right. And then a working level contact who also wants to see the deal because, um, if you can get those two points of leverage, they support each other. You know, one builds the base case, the other is the air cover. Uh, and, and that's often how you get things done. I think that's such a um, overlooked skill from entrepreneurs. Because, you know, if you look at, I was talking to a banker the other day and we're going over our portfolio, others' portfolios. And like, honestly, with current markets, it's very hard to see an IPO window, an attractive IPO window. Of course, there are outliers uh, in the next two, three, four years, um, at least. And so, you know, M&A should be a very favorable exit route. And so what founders that have done it before, founders that have those skill sets, then they'll be at a, at a, at an advantage versus others, but it's not easy. It's not only the process, it's also how to set it up, how to maximize the value. And so I think these are all great, great, great lessons that you're, you're sharing. It's a careful um, dance for sure. You know, but the thing is that if you can get into a big company or a big acquirer, there's nothing more exciting for someone who's going to spend most of their career in a big company than to buy something. That's really, really fun. And it's kind of a thrill. So you just have to find the right person and give them that thrill. That's great. Um, 
Trevor, and then let's let's get into your your latest adventure, uh, which is Creases. Tell us a bit more about uh, what is it all about, and then we'll dive into some of the questions as well. Yeah, well, you know, I really dug into the blockchain, and I am just amazed by what the universal ledger, the blockchain, enables. You know, the fact that all these interactions, these transactions, these contracts are now immutable, they can't be denied, they can't be ignored, they're known to everyone. That's such a game changer and it's gonna affect everything from payment processing, ticketing, loyalty points, um, title, all these incredible things. And we've seen some early use cases like cryptocurrencies, like NFTs, et cetera, but many more are to come. And I really studied the tools in the space and I was struck by how primitive they are. Like the analogy I like to use is uh, all these um, uh, sort of wallets and things, they're sort of like mushrooms that grow after a heavy rain. They sort of sprouted up overnight and some of them have very narrow use cases or very specific, but they all kind of grew at once without any kind of long-term vision or plan. And when you look at uh, Web3, look at the blockchain, um, and you go back to web one and web two, you know, the, the, um, in web one and web two, it was the browser or, or the search window that really drove consumer adoption. Um, and with web three, I'm very convinced it's the wallet that really drives engagement and interactive interaction with uh, the platform. And so I looked at these wallets, they all felt very first generation to me. So I decided to kind of start with a clean sheet of paper and build um, the, the kind of, I call it a super app. It's kind of a next generation wallet that has all the best safety and convenience and it's non-custodial. So we can't, you know, touch or, or take anything away and, um, and, and all the convenience, but that is basically foolproof, right? Where you can never get locked out, no matter what, you can't make mistakes. You don't have to have anxiety. Anyone can use it. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of what's necessary to take the blockchain to the next level. Reverend, how are you navigating the, the current um, quite challenging environment for, for Web3 and crypto writ large? And going back to our previous discussion on, on market, right? Um, you raised you raised around before sort of the crypto crash, which was great. Um, some of the companies that you founded before benefited from you know rising market as well as 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 well as a great team. In this particular moment, very tough for any crypto founder. Great ones, not great ones. We had uh, the founder of Zengo a couple of episodes ago, and he said 2023 will be a really shitty year for crypto founders. <laughs> um, and I think we're seeing that, you know, the, the market has dried up completely, maybe getting harder to to, to get talent uh, from the user perspective, like probably very tough time to start a user focused, you know, app in the crypto web three web world. So how are you navigating this and what do you think are some of the silver linings? Well, kind of going back to, it's not that I'm like the most incredible founder, but like um, people who are going to be successful figure stuff out. Right. So I think that when I came up with the concept, I imagined that the masses were coming soon to the blockchain. Um, and I think that will happen, but I think that's been delayed probably by a couple of years. Um, so, you know, you can point to Starbucks or Nike or LVMH or even Anheuser-Busch that are doing things on the blockchain for mass consumers. But 
I think that's going to happen slower than originally seeming. But if you look just at the U.S., there's approximately 30 million people who hold crypto assets and something like almost 50 percent of all men age 25 to 40 hold a crypto asset. So it's not like it's a small market. And so I think that if anything has shifted in my thinking, it's to start with the existing community of people who hold crypto assets. Those people still need a better place. Right now they're keeping their stuff in you know, MetaMask and Coinbase. And uh, there's actually structural opportunities because the Binances and the Coinbases and these um, custodial wallets, it's becoming obvious that that's a terrible place to hold your assets. And so people are going to want a non-custodial where their assets can't be touched or taken. Um, and uh, that's a, a pretty much a huge opportunity and from there uh, to springboard. So I actually think that the quote unquote crypto winter is great because the, the ones who should be building the, you know, the wallet to rule them all, um, the existing Web2 um, uh, companies, they should be doing it, but they're so distracted that they aren't, which creates an incredible market opportunity. Yeah. Do you have any insights or that you can share or not? Because that's something I was surprised. I'm seeing very big and large brands that are still doubling down on the Web3 concept, uh, maybe shying away from pure cryptocurrencies. But you mentioned a couple of names and and I know you've been in contact with with a bunch of brands. I am uh, you know, being surprised with the level of interest despite the crash. Um, do you have a view on, on on the latest on how brands are looking at the space and what are some of the things that or some of the sectors that you think will be more, you know, more uh, transformed sooner, not maybe in two, three, four years? Well, um, we certainly see it in retail and consumer brands. Um, there's all kinds of interesting experiments going on. I mean, in California right now, they're experimenting with putting title on the blockchain at the DMV, you know, for automobiles. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you can point to the Starbucks Odyssey program, which um, is just constrained because they haven't opened it up to everyone. But from all accounts, they have a demand of millions of people who want to participate, you know, once once they open open the gates more broadly. Um, and uh, you can point to companies like MasterCard, which have been experimenting with putting credit card transactions on the blockchain, as well as a number of consumer-related things like um, music uh, that at MasterCard. Um, and uh, I think that the um, uh, ticketing is going to be a very logical one because there's so much fraud in ticketing. And um, the, the blockchain does away with that uh, and um, is just way more efficient. Um, loyalty points, uh, a lot of things like that, um, I think are going to happen sooner rather than later. And I do agree that um, we don't have the crystal ball. We don't know if you know, the bet is that the consumer wave, the big consumer wave will come in two, mm -hmm. three years or, or, or I mean, it, that it has been delayed and not invalidated. Uh, but there is a benefit of keep you know keep going now during the winter and then picking it up whenever as opposed to you know shutting down or picking it up in a couple of years i was chatting to a ai founder today that launched in the previous ai bubble in 2018 or 2017 there was the whole craziness around chatbots and you know that sort of crashed and then he kept going and now he's capitalizing on all of the work that he's done on the over the past couple of years 
on the next bubble or the next cycle, which is the current one. So totally. Um, and you know, in addition to the, you know, Google was basically um, uh, catapulted to success during, you know, a terrible year, and a lot of like very successful businesses grew out of very bad periods. But um, you know, going back to your comment about AI. Um, these large language models are going to require um, verified inputs because one of the knocks on AI is right now the outcomes sometimes are skewed by by false data, you know, or bad data. And so I think um, as AI grows, using the blockchain at, to verify uh, data, statistics, and information that the the large language models can draw from to come up with verified results i think the, the two are actually gonna gonna enhance each other trevor there is a saying saying in argentina that goes something like uh you know when when you're having a dinner after or you're a chat after the dinner and you're having this sober mesa which is exactly what we're doing never discuss politics religion or soccer or football <laughs> and so i'm gonna break that commandment and talk a little bit about politics um because after going back to our arnold um, comment, you know, after crushing it on the on the entrepreneur side of things, 2018, you became U.S. ambassador to Austria. How did that happen? Like, was it something you were looking for? How did it happen? Just, just tell us a bit more about that. Just don't ask me if I'm Boca or River. Um, <laughs> you say Boca. Okay, then of course I'll <laughs> say that. But it was it was actually kind of a crazy thing. Um, so uh, Peter Thiel was one of my investors in my last company. And um, Ivanka Trump was an old friend of mine um, who you know, I'd known from growing up. And so when President Trump won, uh, they were looking to kind of um, stack the transition team with uh, qualified people. And so in my case, my grandfather had also been a diplomat and was also ambassador to Austria. And so they kind of came to me and said, would you be interested in serving and, um, you know, maybe an ambassadorship or whatever. And I, I had donated to the Republican Party and I had some other um, contacts there who also were supportive. And so I thought, you know, why not? It was always sort of in the back of my mind. Number one, to serve my country. Um, that was always a dream of mine. And number two, to uh, to do something, you know, abroad with diplomacy. And so I said, sure. And it was just an insane process of, you know, like a root canal of going through all of my uh, financial affairs. And then uh, the FBI interviewed people I'd known my entire life, you know, uh, at different stages in order to give me my top secret security clearance. And then all of a sudden I was like sitting in a Senate, Senate hearing, testifying in front of a bunch of senators. Um, and I am, you know, proud to admit I was unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. That's awesome. And and after being on the inside, um, what do you think would surprise the most for about your day to day or about uh, what uh, an ambassador does from the outs for anybody on the outside? What do you think is the most surprising thing or would surprise most of people? You know, a lot of my friends have been watching this show on Netflix called The Diplomat. Um, and uh, what's interesting is there's a lot that's accurate about it. It's not not totally unlike how my life was. Obviously, it's sort of all made for Hollywood. But there's a couple of things that do bug me. The one is 
you know, when you need to go somewhere, the government does not send a Gulfstream jet for you. Uh, they, you know, let you buy a coach ticket. <laughs> In fact, most people would be surprised to hear as an ambassador, which is the same rank as a four-star general, um, that you get exactly two business class tickets the entire time you're ambassador. One to post and one when you return back for the last time. Other than that, you fly coach uh, or, or you pay yourself to upgrade. And similarly, you know, you pretty much pay for everything. I mean, you have a tiny entertainment budget and you can't even use that budget to entertain your own team because it, your events have to be more than 50% non-US citizens. So in my case, I had 400 or so people who work for me. If I wanted to do a holiday party or 4th of July, I had to pay for it myself. The other thing is no cell phones. So certainly never in the office. It's a secure environment. So when I see that woman on the diplomat, you know, on her cell phone in her office, it's like that would never happen. Uh, and the ambassador's office is kind of like a, almost like a sacred space. I mean, you have to have a reason to be in that part of the building uh, and it's not busy at all. It's like, you know, uh, um, so, but um, but it's a it's a crazy life. And going going um, more in detail into the the day to day, any routines or any specific strategies or anything that you can share that you picked up from your time uh, in public service that you're now applying to your tech life as an entrepreneur, or that you could have applied in your previous life in the other companies. Yeah, you know, actually, I would say it in reverse. So the United States is a little bit unique in as much as about a third of our ambassadors are chosen by the White House and not career. And it's a it's a topic of controversy. Uh, and to be candid, in some cases, it's worked out extremely well, in some cases, extremely poorly. But in general, I think it's a very good system for a couple of reasons. The first is that the people they pick tend to have had very important uh, careers or professional lives, and therefore a lot of information and best practices they bring into the bureaucracy. Um, so, you know, the State Department is, uh, all, you know, writ large on almost 90,000 people, and they need the new DNA bringing in perspectives and ideas. It's very healthy. And the other thing is that the ambassadors tend to have close connections to the White House which make them more important than they would be if they were career to the foreign country. But um, in my case, I brought OKRs and business type objectives to my country team, to the diplomatic work I was doing. And so, you know, my point to my team was, you're all brilliant, you're all excellent, and I expect like excellence as a baseline, but I want all of you to come back to me and tell me how will you transform this relationship? What's your personal, you know, OKR for what are you and your team going to do to take this to the next level? Um, and that was, I think, thinking they, they hadn't seen. And also when you're, you know, in tech and you're talking to media, or whatever, you know how to speak to a reporter or to, um, uh, you know, or I mean, I spoke to students and religious leaders and, you know, um, about half the job is in the building, setting goals and objectives. In my case, I had 13 branches of government that reported to me, you know, hundreds of people. And, um, but the other half of the job is meeting with the leaders, meeting with the parliament, meeting with the media, religious leaders, business leaders, 
students and also touring the regions of the country. So you have to know how to bring out the charm, how to engage people, how to, how to clearly communicate what are our objectives. Trevor, um, I have to ask, what's, what's your view on the, on the U upcoming U.S. elections? Um, I know there is a, a couple of few names, uh, new names in the Democratic Party, uh, maybe RFK, um, a couple of new names in the Republican Party, maybe DeSantis. Do you think, um, are you excited about these new names or do you think this will be most likely a rematch between Trump and Biden? Well, you know, we're still months away, so anything can happen. I think that's the first thing. I yeah. would say absent possible surprises, um, it will probably be Biden and Trump. Possible surprises on Biden would be either a health-related thing or possibly some kind of, of you know, uh, more detail on these revelations of, of um, selling influence for money. On Trump, it could be uh, either another indictment or it could be um, that these uh, legal troubles weigh him down so much that someone like a DeSantis could overtake him over the course of the primaries. Um, uh, and so those are possibilities. But right now, I would say it's most likely going to be Biden versus Trump. And it's a bit of a contrarian point of view. But I would say if that's the case, I would actually predict that uh, Trump would win. But uh, but there's, again, a lot to be seen. Trevor, thanks so much for a terrific conversation. Before I let you go, I want to give you some minutes or any closing remarks. Uh, where can people find more about you, about Creases, your current company, anything else that you want to share? Well, Creases, first of all, do you know the story of Creases? Creases was a, a king in ancient Greece who changed the world because he created the first fungible coins around 550 BC. So every Croesus coin had exactly the same amount of metal. Uh, and that was a really big innovation, which allowed for commerce, um, the arts, e even democracy based on this currency he created. So I love the analogy, but no one could spell Croesus. Um, uh, and so I simplified the spelling to just K-R-E-S-U-S, -S, like Croesus, because that was phonetically right. So Croesus, you know, was the name I picked. But in the App Store, you can find the Croesus um, Super App and Crypto Wallet. So download that or go to the Croesus website. Um, and even if you don't want to buy any crypto, you can mint an NFT for free and you can learn. And I, I think people really do need to get educated on the blockchain um, just because I do think in the future it's going to affect all of us. And so a little literacy is important. Um, and uh, other than that, I just I would encourage anyone whose dream it is to be an entrepreneur to just do it. You know, the thing I learned as an entrepreneur is you really don't need to know anything. You just need to know how to learn on the job. Uh, so I like the, if, if anyone ever saw that movie, The Matrix, it's like, you know, he steps into a helicopter and he's like, now I need to download a program for how to fly a helicopter. That's what being an entrepreneur is like. You, you just figure it out. If you can do that and you can be um, stubborn enough to refuse to fail, 
those two characteristics will make you successful and you don't have to have, go to MIT or Harvard or, or know everything. You just have to have the, those convictions. Awesome. 